prevent you from getting this coronavirus. Holla back. You can also call us about it too at 202-382-7664. 202-382-7664. I'm Nikki Strong and this is VOA One The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear from Brian Lynn and Alice Bryant. Later, Ashley will present the next part in our series on America's National Parks. But first, here is Brian Lynn. A museum facing financial difficulties because of COVID-19 restrictions has received a surprise gift meant to honor people who died of the disease. The gift is a 16th century artwork by the Dutch painter Bartholomeus Spronger. It is called Body of Christ Supported by Angels. The painting is now part of Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum in the Netherlands. Taco Dibbets, general director at the museum, had long sought to buy the painting to add to its collection. But he missed out on getting the work earlier this year and thought he might not get another chance. Dibbets felt like he was in the perfect position to buy the oil on copper painting in early March at an art sale in the southern Netherlands. We were standing there with our curators around the painting and saying how wonderful it was, he told the Associated Press. What the group did not know, however, was that the picture had been sold soon after it arrived at the art sale. So Dibbets returned to Amsterdam. There, he dealt with the museum's financial losses resulting from the coronavirus health crisis. With visitors no longer permitted, Dibbets said the museum was losing about 1 million euros a week. The money represents a big part of the museum's operating budget. Dibbets said he was caught by surprise when he got a telephone call from Bob Hobbolt, an international dealer and art collector. He owned the painting and earlier said he had sold it. Hobbolt, a Dutch citizen, explained that the coronavirus crisis had resulted in the sale being canceled. The collector, who lives in France and Italy and has offices in Amsterdam, Paris, and New York, was unable to travel, just like everyone else. In isolation, I took the step that I would not think about its financial value, 
he told the AP in a phone interview from Italy. Only its emotional value. Habolt did not want to say how much the painting could sell for. It is a big gift, no matter how you look at it, he said. He added that he decided to donate the painting in memory of the victims of COVID-19, not only those who died, but also those who suffered. The collector said he also hoped his act might lead others to support the arts as well. Hubbelt, who is a native of Amsterdam, said he wanted the painting to go before a very big audience, and the Rijksmuseum seemed like the perfect choice. The painting itself could be seen to represent both the current times we are experiencing and the future the world is looking to. In it, a dead Jesus Christ is lifted from the ground by three angels and taken skyward. The picture represents a big message, Hubbelt said. I hope people will stop in front of it for a moment and realize that although they look at a religious painting, they are looking at something timeless, full of compassion, mercy, and hope. Museums around the world have been struggling during the COVID-19 health crisis. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, estimates that one out of eight museums might not survive. Dibbets said he welcomes Hubbelt's act of kindness in the current unsettling environment. That a dealer decides to donate a work when he doesn't know where his future is going, I think that's something very special, he said. I'm Brian Lynn. number of American cities are rethinking the presence of law enforcement officers in their schools. City officials are considering ways to answer the concerns of thousands of people who have protested the death of George Floyd. In some areas, Young protesters have been demanding the removal of officers from schools. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after a white police officer pressed his knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes. Floyd was handcuffed and lying on the ground. He can be heard saying, I can't breathe, 
in videos of his arrest and death. Minneapolis suspended its school resource officer program last week. School district officials in nearby St. Paul, Minnesota, and in Denver, Colorado, are considering doing the same. Protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, have made the end of its school resource officer program one of their demands. School resource officers are law enforcement officers who are responsible for keeping schools and their students safe. Along with enforcing the law, the resource officers are expected to act as unofficial counselors and provide guidance on issues such as bullying and drunk driving. Portland Public Schools, the largest school district in Oregon, announced last week it was cutting ties with the Portland Police Bureau. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said he would also discontinue using school resource officers in two of the city's smaller districts. Leaders must listen and respond to community, Wheeler said. We must disrupt the patterns of racism and injustice. Many in Portland have voiced support for the decision to remove the officers. But others raised immediate concerns about student safety in the event of a school shooting or other emergency. Mo Kennedy is head of the National Association of School Resource Officers. He described any decision to remove the officers from schools as a knee-jerk reaction. In other words, the decision happened very quickly and without much thought. Kennedy added that the actions by a few school districts could cause many other districts to make the same decision. He said such moves cause harm to students around the country. Kennedy called Floyd's death atrocious and the actions of the Minneapolis police evil. But he said that when school resource officer programs are done right, they can be good examples of community-based policing. But critics of the program say the officer's presence can also lead to the criminalization of students, especially students of color. In 2015, a school resource officer in South Carolina was caught on video forcing a female student on the ground and pulling her across a classroom. The student had refused to surrender her phone to the officer. There are an estimated 25,000 school resource officers nationwide, Kennedy said. Across the United States, 43% of public schools had an armed law enforcement officer present at least once a week in the 2015-2016 school year. That was the last year 
The National Center for Education Statistics studied the issue. As bars across Europe slowly reopen, as many as one million free or prepaid beers are waiting to welcome back the public. Large and small beer companies have made it possible for people to buy drinks in advance to support shuttered bars. In some cases, the reward is some free beer when the doors reopen. Anheuser-Busch launched its first voucher campaign in Belgium and has since sold over 200,000 beers. It also started a similar voucher campaign in 20 other markets across Europe and from Brazil to Hong Kong. Raising over $6 million for bars and restaurants. The number of drinks Heineken has sold through its many voucher campaigns is at 270,000. Now that bars are reopening, consumers have had their first chance to bring in their vouchers. Two friends. Aranza Rulin and Tomas Hufner Lovgren were among those to get free beers after bars reopened in Denmark on May 18th. Through its campaign, Danish beer company Carlsberg offered free beers in a bar to consumers who bought bottles or cans from stores. The idea was to bring drinkers back with free drinks and hope they would then buy more. Hofner, Lovgren, and Rulin both seemed willing to do so. I rarely only drink one beer, Rulin said, after collecting a free drink at a bar in a town outside Copenhagen. Drinkers elsewhere are now in line. On Tuesday, France became the latest nation to reopen bars and restaurants. The Netherlands did so the day before. Ireland, Belgium, and Britain are expected to follow this month and next. Julian Marsili is with Carlsberg. He said its campaign would continue into the summer. Marsili said since there will not be much travel outside Denmark for a while, the company is encouraging people to explore bars throughout Denmark. The campaigns have helped, but not corrected some losses. In Britain, the British Beer and Pub Association said pubs could have recorded their best April in 10 years, 
selling 745 million glasses of beer because of unusually warm and sunny weather. Beer sales in stores have risen, but well below the rate of other alcohols like wine and liquor and not enough to fix the loss from in-person drinking. That information comes from Nielsen, a marketing research company. Reopened bars and restaurants will clearly not operate as they did before the coronavirus measures. There will be limited time at the bar, less table service, shorter hours, and measures to lessen contact between workers and consumers and to keep consumers apart. Emma McClarkin is chief executive for BBPA. She said social distancing rules make a big difference. Two meters, currently used in Britain, might permit only one-third of Britain's 47,000 pubs to reopen. But a one-meter rule, considered safe by the World Health Organization, would permit 75% to operate, she said. Beer companies have also been helping with some of the new materials needed for health safety, learning from China, where restaurants and bars reopened from March. Jan Kraps is chief executive of Budweiser Brewing Company. She said Anheuser-Busch's Asian operation had sent welcome kits to smaller bars to help them separate groups of customers. The kits included things like plastic separators, hand cleaner, facial coverings, and advice to 50,000 bars and restaurants across China. Kraps said the kits were being reproduced in many other countries, such as the Americas, where the company has its largest markets. A study of British pubgoers found 93% were willing to revisit their local bar and over a third planned to visit within a week of reopening. Most also wanted to stay two meters away from strangers. Business will not return as before. Belgian cafe and restaurant owners expect on average 45% fewer visitors as a result of social distancing measures and public concerns. I'm Alice Bryant. Are you at risk of getting seriously ill from the new coronavirus? Here are some things to keep in mind. 80% of coronavirus cases are mild. Young and healthy people are at low risk. Other people and those with serious health conditions have a greater risk of serious illness or even death. If you have a cough, fever, and difficulty breathing, contact a doctor and stay away from other people. For more information, 
visit the World Health Organization website at www.who.int or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at www.cdc.gov. Today, we visit one of the most unusual national parks in the United States. It is called the Dry Tortugas National Park. It includes seven small islands. They are about 200 kilometers off the coast of the state of Florida. One of the islands was once a prison. The first European to see the small islands was the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon. He arrived by ship in 1513. Ponce de Leon was an older man who was searching for special water that stories said would make him young again. It was called the Fountain of Youth. Ponce de Leon named the islands the Tortugas. Tortuga is the Spanish word for turtle. Thousands of turtles lived on the islands. Ponce de Leon was able to capture many of these creatures to provide meat for his ship's crew. He never did find the Fountain of Youth. In fact, the islands had no fresh water on them at all. The tortugas were dry. The word dry began to appear on early maps of the area to warn ships that they could not find fresh water there. Centuries later, America's third president, Thomas Jefferson, took an interest in the islands. He hoped they could become a place that could help protect ships traveling in a large area of water called the Florida Straits. He proposed a military base be built there. In 1821, the United States took control of Florida and its islands. Construction of a military fort began in 1848, long after Jefferson's death. The fort was to be the home of 1,500 men and 450 huge cannons. The fort's name? Fort Jefferson. Fort Jefferson was never really completed. It had to be worked on continually. The salt air, wind, water, and sand quickly caused problems. The weight of the fort's heavy brick walls made them sink into the sand. Slaves and prisoners did the building and repair work at the fort. Many of the prisoners were army troops. They had been found guilty of crimes and ordered to serve their sentences at Fort Jefferson. In July of 1865, four new prisoners arrived at Fort Jefferson. They had been found guilty of taking part in the successful plot 
to murder the President of the U.S., Abraham Lincoln. One of the prisoners was sentenced for giving medical aid to the man who killed President Lincoln. He was also found guilty of being an active member of the assassination plot. That man was Samuel Alexander Mudd. He was a 32-year-old doctor from the state of Maryland. He was sentenced to spend the rest of his life doing hard labor at Fort Jefferson. The walls at Fort Jefferson were about 15 meters tall. Inside the walls of the fort were hundreds of rooms. Most of them held guns that pointed out to the sea. Many other buildings were also inside the huge fort. No prisoner had ever successfully escaped from Fort Jefferson. It was more than 200 kilometers across open ocean to the nearest occupied land. Samuel Alexander Mudd must have believed the fort would be his home for the rest of his life, but he was wrong. In 1867, Dr. Mudd was helping the prison doctor treat victims of yellow fever. Many people died from yellow fever. Soon, the prison doctor lost his own battle with the disease. Only Dr. Mudd was left to treat the increasing number of men who became sick with yellow fever. Later, the sickness seemed to leave the island. Many of those who survived knew they owed their lives to Dr. Mudd. Almost every man in Fort Jefferson wrote to the President of the United States, asking that Mudd be pardoned because of his work treating patients with yellow fever. They called Mudd a hero. In February of 1869, President Andrew Johnson signed a presidential pardon. Mudd was a free man. He left Fort Jefferson and returned to his home in Maryland. He once again became a family doctor. In 1874, the American army left Fort Jefferson. Modern artillery made the fort no longer useful. Today, the old fort and empty little islands provide a protected home for thousands of birds, fish, and sea turtles. Visitors travel for hours on high-speed boats that bring them to the islands from Key West, Florida. They swim in the warm waters and enjoy the bright Florida sun. Many try snorkeling or scuba diving to explore the underwater shipwrecks. Still others bring tents and spend a few days living on the white sand beaches. Thousands of visitors make the trip to the Dry Tortugas National Park every year. Of course, soldiers no longer greet them when they arrive at Fort Jefferson. Now, friendly members of the National Park Service do. They meet every boat filled with visitors. They smile and say, Welcome to Fort Jefferson and the Dry Tortugas National Park. The small island's days as a prison are long past. Yet, 
Almost every visitor to the park asks about its most famous prisoner, Dr. Samuel Alexander Mudd. They ask to see his room. Most people know that the doctor did not end up spending the rest of his life in the Fort Jefferson prison. Only a few of the huge cannons remain at the park. They help show visitors what the old fort looked like. The weather continues to affect the fort's grounds and buildings, so workers continue to fight against environmental damage. The park extends over an area of more than 26,000 hectares. Almost all of this is ocean and living coral reefs that protect the islands. Many ships have sunk in the waters around the islands over the centuries. The wrecks of these ships help provide safe places for many fish. Thousands of kinds of fish live in these waters. Some visitors are even lucky enough to see sea turtles swimming in the clear blue waters. Dry Tortugas is also home to many seabirds. Visitors are not permitted on some of the islands within the park to protect birds that are laying eggs. The striking natural beauty and relaxed feel of the islands today seems far different from Dry Tortuga's earlier history as a lonely, inescapable prison. That's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson.